You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. You may remember a couple years ago when one of the world's largest ships became stuck in the Suez Canal and blocked shipping for six days. The name of the ship was the Ever Given, and it was owned by the company called Evergreen, as you can see on the, on the side of the ship. Kind of embarrassing, right, to have your name plastered in that large a font in the middle of, of the canal. The container ship was, is 1,312 feet long, 1,312 feet long, and it was blown sideways during a dust storm. And the result was that it had its bow and its stern stuck into opposite banks of the canal. Whoops. Uh, over the six days there, as crews worked to free the ship, about 450 ships sat waiting to pass through the canal in the queue. And this incident disrupted 12% of global trade and held up an estimated 55 to $60 billion worth of goods for those six days. And one of the questions that was very common after this happened was, how could one ship disrupt so much? And the answer uh, was multifaceted, but one of the big reasons is because the Suez Canal, the Suez Canal, is a choke point. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines a choke point as a strategic narrow route providing passage through or to another region. And here are a couple of Shots of the canal from above. One's a, a map. The other is a satellite image. It, it's a sliver of a passage. It connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Ocean. It's not connecting a couple of small lakes. These are huge bodies of water. It's 120 miles long, and in its narrowest points, it's only 670 feet wide. And so a 1,300-foot ship got off course and blocked all the canal traffic for a week. And this sets up the two verses that we're studying this morning in Colossians, because we've come to the point of the book that we could call the choke point. Colossians 2, 6, and 7 links the majestic theology of chapter 1 with the practical response of chapters 2 and 3. Everything that came before these two verses flow into it, and everything that comes after it flows out of it. Let's read these two verses, Colossians 2, 6, and 7. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Let's consider this for a moment, the, the larger context here. The first phrase, as you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, points back to chapter 1, because chapter 1 taught us about Christ Jesus the Lord and about receiving him. We learned about the unsurpassed value of Jesus, the glory and the majesty of the Son of God. And we also learned how to accept him, to receive him for salvation. Jesus redeemed us by his blood. He reconciled us back to God. Now we have hope through our relationship with Christ. And the second phrase of verse 6, so walk in him, looks forward to the main body of the letter. Let's ask 
Let's do the reporter questions. Let's ask why, where, when, how, what, so often, etc. Why should we walk in him? Well, the rest of chapter 2 shows us that just as Jesus is sufficient for salvation, he is sufficient also for sanctification. There is no spiritual fullness or satisfaction apart from Jesus. We can't grow spiritually apart from him, so we continue to walk in him for sanctification. Well, how can we walk in him? That's what chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 talks about. You walk in him by setting your mind on things above and seeking things above. Well, what does walking in him look like? From chapter 3, verse 5 to chapter 4, verse 6, Paul colors these truths with practical instructions. He explains the type of character, the relationships, the lifestyle habits that are consistent with our faith in Jesus. So Colossians 2, 6, and 7, these two little verses on the screen, they're extremely important for the book as a whole. But they're also extremely important because of what they teach in them. So let's take a closer look at them directly. They're, They're actually a single sentence, one sentence. And the main idea is the little phrase at the end of verse 6, so walk in him. This verb walk is a command Now, Paul doesn't literally mean pace around the room to get your 10,000 steps in. When he talks about walking, he's referring to your manner of living, the way you conduct yourself. And this is not the first time that Paul mentions the word walk. If you glance in your Bibles back to chapter 1 and verses 9 through 12, we see that Paul records his prayer for the Colossians. And in verse 10... Paul prays that believers would walk worthy of the Lord Jesus. In other words, that they would live up to their Savior's name and live consistently with him. Here, Paul commands the readers to walk in Jesus, which means he commands them to do what he's prayed for them. His prayer for them is perfectly aligned with the will of God. Now in 2.6, the phrase, in him is emphasized. It's in the emphatic position. Verse 6 literally reads, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, in him you must walk. In him you must walk. In him does not refer to a location, like we're sitting in the auditorium, it's not that, or a time we gathered here in the morning. It refers to a relationship, our relationship specifically with Jesus. We live in union with him. And so the walking we do is worthy of Jesus. Paul will expand this idea more in verse 7. We'll return to it here in a few moments. So put all this together and we have our big idea. These two verses are telling us to walk worthy of Christ Jesus your Lord. Walk worthy of Jesus Christ, your Lord. Everything in the rest of the sentence colors this command and gives us more detail about walking in Jesus. And it's a simple concept, right? Walk in him. Let your life be worthy of him by the way you live. But, but the fact of the matter is, we Christians are human, and humans are forgetful people. And even if you've been walking with Jesus for decades, as some of you have been, 
The Christian life isn't just learning new things that entertain us. It's being reminded of truths that sustain us. 2 Peter 1 says the same thing. I'm going to come back to this passage in a few moments. But Peter writes and says, I'm not telling you new things. I'm actually writing to stir you up by way of a reminder so that you will do and live as you know how. Because we're easily distracted from pursuing Christ, we need to be regularly exhorted to walk worthy of him. And that's what this text is going to do today. Well, what does walking worthy of Jesus look like? In these two verses, we have four truths that show us how we walk worthy of Christ Jesus. Four truths that help us understand this command to walk in him. The first one is from verse 6. You are commanded to walk in Jesus as a logical, natural outflow of your salvation. A logical, natural outflow of your salvation. What does he say here? As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There's a logical progression here. The word therefore signals that this is a conclusion of what has come before. Here's the logical conclusion. Your daily Christian life is an extension of your salvation. In other words, your ongoing spiritual walk is consistent with your reception of Jesus. You don't get saved on one hand and then walk away from Jesus. Salvation is not the finish line, it's the starting blocks. It enters us into the race, and it's only after entering the race can we run the race. Salvation, to use a different metaphor, is not a dead end. It's an on-ramp. There's a spot over off of Wadsworth, off of 285, conveniently located right by Yummy's Donuts. That's how I know where this is. That you you take a left turn, and there's a a barrier, and it's right next to the on-ramp for the highway. And if you're trying to get to the highway, you, you actually can't. You have to turn around or you have to go through Yummy's parking lot, which you know which decision I make, to get onto the highway. Salvation is not a dead end. It's the on-ramp to, to get you to your destination. What's your destination? It's glory. Because our purpose in life is to glorify our Savior. As the song said that we just sung, to walk worthy of him until the day we're called home to glory. Consider three ways your ongoing spiritual walk is an outflow of your salvation. First, your ongoing spiritual walk is with the same Jesus who saved you. Notice how Paul describes Jesus. It's Christ Jesus the Lord. Jesus is his name. The Lord is his position and Christ is his title. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, our glorious Savior. What did chapter 1 tell us about him? In Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus, God reconciled all things to himself by Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. He's our glorious Savior. He's also the Lord. He is the supreme being in all the universe. There is none greater. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. This makes Jesus an unsurpassed treasure. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And after salvation, Jesus doesn't cheapen in value. He doesn't become less of Lord. He remains the Lord. He remains our treasure, at least he ought to be. At salvation, Jesus rescued you, and in sanctification, in our Christian living, you grow more deeply in your relationship with this same Jesus. You do that as you love him, you trust him, and you depend on him more fully day after day. There's a lot of wrong ways we think about the Christian life. It's not a list of rules to follow. It's not boxes to check. It's not rituals to perform. It's a relationship. And so therefore you love, you treasure your Savior, the Lord Jesus. The fuel that keeps the Christian life going is Jesus. As the word of grace tells us and gives us an image of the face of Christ, as we behold him and are conformed into his image, your ongoing spiritual walk is with him. So that's the first reason that it's a natural outflow of your salvation. It's with the same Jesus. Second, your ongoing spiritual walk lives out your new identity. At salvation, you received a new identity, and now you live consistently with that. And the overarching description of your identity in Christ is your union with him, which means that your fate is inseparably bound to Jesus. That's what Paul says in verse 6. Walk in him, in your relationship with Christ, through your union with him. What does that mean? Since Jesus conquered death, one day you will be free from sin. Since he rose again, one day you will also rise again. Since he enjoys eternal life in the presence of God, because of your union with him, one day you also will enjoy eternal life in the presence of God. Now, in chapter one, we saw several ways, several metaphors that Paul used to describe our union with Jesus. These new identities help us to understand what happened to us. What took place at the cross when I accepted Christ? And now, how should I live because of it? Believers, as we found, are qualified heirs with an eternal inheritance laid up in heaven. We are saints who stand holy before God. We are people of the light who've been called from darkness to live in light. We are rescued from danger, safe and secure in the arms of our Jesus. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom. And now our passport has a different country. We live for his land, our true homeland. We are redeemed, which means that we're free from the power of sin. And that means that in Christ, sin is neutered. Its power is stripped. We have grace. We're also forgiven. Your sins are wiped clean. The past no longer has to haunt you because of what Jesus has done. You're also reconciled. Once you and I were aliens and enemies, not aliens as in Martians, but estranged from God separated from him. And now because of the cross, we've been brought near through the blood of Christ. We're children now. The Christian life is the process 
of living out our identity, of living consistently with who we are in Christ, of matching our lifestyle with what is true of us. The third way that uh, that sanctification, your ongoing spiritual walk is an outflow, is that we continue to walk by faith. Question, how are you saved? By grace, through faith. How are you to live the Christian life? By grace, through faith. Your sanctification is in the same manner as your salvation, by faith. You trusted Christ by faith, and now you live by faith. And Paul makes this abundantly clear in the New Testament. He writes in Galatians 3, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, we were saved and received the Holy Spirit when we believed, when we exercised faith in Jesus. He continues, Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by, your, by the flesh, by your human effort? No. We're saved by faith and we live by faith. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith and not by sight. If we're honest, though, it's difficult to walk by faith. We can admit that. It's so difficult to not live by our senses, to make decisions based on what we see or feel or think or perceive. Faith takes God at his word, plants its feet in God's unchanging character and promises, and then lives with peace and confidence. That's faith. Hebrews 11, 1 through 6. Does that describe your life? Life gives us many opportunities to walk by sight, to make decisions based on what we see right in front of us. But the word of God calls us to resist that thinking. Don't walk by sight. Walk by faith. Well, what does living by faith look like? It's it's believing God is who he says he is, even when life doesn't make sense. When the diagnosis is cancer or Alzheimer's, God is still good. It didn't take him by surprise. He didn't make a mistake. He is still Lord and sovereign and ruling. You can still trust him. Living by faith is clinging to God's promises in spite of physical evidence to the contrary. Inflation has not been a blessing for anyone, I don't think. (laughs) And when inflation shows no sign of lifting, the pressure on your resources may be stretched to its limit, and yet God's promises are not stretched to their limit. God's promises are still valid. They're still true. He still supplies all of our needs. He still gives peace to those who trust him. Living by faith chooses to prioritize God's agenda above mine. To choose to live for someone that you've never seen. 1 Peter 1 says, whom having not seen, we love him. That's faith. You love someone and devote your life to someone that you've never seen? That's why Jesus said in the end of John's gospel, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Living by faith 
embraces a scriptural lifestyle, even though your secular coworkers or unbelieving family won't understand. It chooses to take God's position even when the culture sides against you. And whatever challenge you face, I encourage you to rise each day and remind yourself, your faith may be feeble, fine. Remind your feeble faith that trusting God is your lifeline. Rehearse God's promises and believe them because even in a storm, if you have your faith firmly fixed on Jesus, peace and strength can be yours. Your spiritual walk is a logical, natural outflow of your salvation. That's the first connection to the command to walk in him. Second, we walk worthy of Jesus because of your union with Christ. I've mentioned this a little bit already. And in verse 7, Paul gives us two reasons why we walk worthy of Jesus. And he uses two metaphors to do this. He says, rooted and built up in him. That's again the little phrase, in him, which describes our union with Christ. The first metaphor of rooted comes from farming and the second from construction. But put together, they both picture a healthy plant or tree growing up. Let's walk through it. First of all, your union with Jesus means that you are rooted in him. The word rooted pictures a tree being planted. And over the last couple of years, we have planted many things and had very small return on our planting investments. <laughs> I, we laid grass seed this, I laid grass seed this week. I'm not giving you any credit for it. I laid grass seed this week for the third time. Uh, third time we're trying back there. And I said, we're going artificial turf after this if it doesn't work. We're done with it. Uh, Kate built some garden boxes. I'll give her f full credit for that. She built the garden boxes herself. Last year, we planted pumpkins and a whole assortment of other things. And each pumpkin vine produced one pumpkin each. And that was okay because Zane and Xander got to carve one pumpkin each. I, we just don't have great skill. Uh, we don't have a black thumb quite, but it's brownish, not green. <laughs> but the goal in planting is that the tree or the plant puts its roots down deep in the soil, right? That the roots would get established to get the nutrients and have the stability that it needs. And the soil in which every believer is planted is Christ. We put our roots down deep in him. Now there's a connection back to our Old Testament here. Because the image of being rooted comes from multiple passages in the Old Testament. The first one, I bet you could guess, Psalm chapter 1 talks about the blessed person. They don't fellowship with sinners or, or practice evil, but the blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The man or the woman who loves God and meditates on God's word is planted deep because the word of God is the water source of our souls. There is always nutrients and strength found through the word of grace. Whatever this person does will prosper even in times of of heat or desert or, or in the fall when leaves are withering, there, there's a water source there. 
Jeremiah 17 uses the same illustration. Jeremiah writes, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Both of these passages picture the godly person being planted in the Lord, in his word. Their Lord supplies them with nutrients like water does a tree so that the believer will go strong. And so at salvation, it's like the, the, the divine gardener has taken the, so, the, 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 the small sapling of a human being, of a human soul, and planted it deeply in the soil of Christ. Walking in him means that we put our roots down in him spiritually. And then the natural progression is to grow up in him, right? When you plant a small tree, a sapling, the natural progression is not death. It's to grow up into a strong tree. And that's what the second metaphor communicates. Your union with Jesus means that you are built up in him. The word built up was used in construction to refer to building on a foundation. Just like when you drive in each week, maybe you look at the homes just to the west of us to see what they've built. And you, sometimes you can see it in stages. Other times it's like, oh, there's a home there and there wasn't last week and it's fast. You're being built up in Christ. And combined with the previous word of rooted, the image is of a vibrant, healthy tree. For the believer, the result of being rooted and built up is spiritual maturity. A sapling freshly planted will eventually grow into a solid tree. As the tree gleans water and nutrients and puts its roots deep, it'll grow strong and steadfast. How then does a believer grow strong and steadfast? How does a believer grow up and is built up in Christ? It's by abiding in the vine. And I think this gardening metaphor is really fascinating because in John 15, Jesus identifies himself as the true vine. We are the branches. He says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Yesterday, some of us were clipping different, different branches that were dead. When the branch is clipped and set off to the side, it's not going to produce fruit. It has to be connected to the, to the trunk or to the vine in order to produce fruit. It's the same way spiritually. Apart from Christ, we cannot bear fruit. We have to abide in him. Well, what does abide mean? What does abiding in Jesus look like? Jesus explains a couple of verses after this. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. To be built up in Christ, we must know Christ's words and apply them. Colossians 3.16 echoes this. Paul is later going to write, we'll eventually get to this verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That word dwell means to be at home with. The word of God should be so at home in you that it permeates your soul. This is what walking worthy requires, knowing and doing the teaching of Jesus. And the result is that 
there will be much fruit. John 15, 5. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. There's again a connection to chapter 1, verse 10 and Paul's prayer. He says that he's praying for these believers to walk worthy to bear fruit, being fruitful in every good work. You see, God's will for you and I is that we would abide in Jesus, soak up his words, and live out the scriptures, and then fruit will be born that gives glory to God. The more fully the word dwells in your heart, the more fruitful your life will be. You cannot bear much spiritual fruit if you are detached from the vine. A Christian who who doesn't spend time in the word of God, who skips worship whenever they feel like it, who never thinks about the truths of scripture or the claims of Christ, will be a barren believer. I hope I'm not talking to anybody in that category today. Because it's God's will, it's Christ's will in John 15, that you would abide in him and have much joy and bear much fruit. What habits are built into your daily and your weekly routine that enable you to abide in the vine? That's probably not a question you can answer kind of quickly here, like, oh yeah, I got a few. Maybe you need to jot that down and come back to it this afternoon or tomorrow morning. What habits are built into my daily and weekly routine that enable me to abide in the vine, to receive the words of Christ, to let it dwell richly in my heart? You have about 16 waking hours in the day. Some of you may have 14 because you sleep 10 hours a night. Some of you have 19 waking hours because you're monsters and you sleep five hours a night. But you have about 16 to 17 waking hours in the night. Uh, during the day. What percentage of your day is spent with the word of Christ dwelling richly in you? It's not a simple answer, but one that requires you to think and to, to consider your life. Now, when the Bible starts to control your thoughts and responses, you know that the word has started to soak your soul and dwell richly in you. When instead of reacting the way you want, Scripture starts coming to your mind. When instead of just rushing to do something because you thought it was a good idea, and you start pausing and thinking, what, what does the Lord Jesus want? What does Scripture say? That's when you know that the Word of Christ is starting to dwell richly in you. That your thoughts and your responses immediately rush back to the Word of God. And when that happens, The result is that you become firmly established in your faith. So we walk worthy of Jesus, third, to be firmly established in your faith. Paul continues in verse 7, established in the faith as you have been taught. Now the faith here could refer to the believer's individual faith, or it could refer to the faith, the body of truth that comprises Christian doctrine. And I don't think we have to separate the two. I think they're both in play. Because as as a believer is taught the full counsel of God, as they're taught and brought up in the faith, their individual faith grows strong and steadfast. They will be established. Now this metaphor of established continues the picture of a tree. 
When you plant a sapling, it is weak and vulnerable. It's fragile, easily blown over by strong winds, which we have around here. You have to guard it from animals like deer eating it. You have to water it meticulously to make sure that it doesn't, it doesn't die. However, once the tree is established, once it puts its roots down deep and grows tall and strong, it is stable. It is steadfast. And that's the picture of a mature Christian. A believer who receives scriptural teaching and abides in Christ's words grows up into a strong, healthy, stable Christian. And when that believer matures, they become fully established. A firmly established believer has a settled faith. And that means two things. First, a settled faith, an established faith, possesses spiritual stability. I've hinted at this already. But back in Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17, we see that the person who delights in the word of God, the person who trusts God, is planted by streams of water. This person is not afraid of drought or heat because they have a, a water source that's reliable. Times of hardship and suffering come, but they're still getting the nutrients they need because they're anchored in Christ and in his word. When storms or drought comes, a believer with a mature, established faith withstands the wind, withstands the waves, because they're planted so deeply in Christ. Doesn't mean they don't struggle. Doesn't mean that that it doesn't hurt. But their feet are firmly planted on the rock of ages, and the Lord is the shelter in the time of storm. Do you want that kind of faith? Do you have that kind of faith that can weather harsh storms? Here's a spiritual principle. You won't have a faith that weathers the storm unless you are rooted, built up, and established before the storm hits. A hurricane is not the time to be pouring foundation or installing a roof. Those things have to be in place before the winds blow strong because the winds of adversity will expose your spiritual depth and strength. Before the storm hits, you have to invest in your relationship with the Lord. And you do that by abiding in the vine by letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you as we just talked about. A firmly established faith holds fast to Christ and remembers that he holds fast to you. It's not all up to you, praise the Lord. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. The second result of being established is not just spiritual stability, but spiritual assurance and confidence because the more settled in your faith you become, the greater your assurance will be. Growth and depth lead to spiritual assurance and confidence. And this is where 2 Peter 1 comes into play. 2 Peter 1 teaches us this same truth. Peter here commands us to give all diligence to make every effort to add to our faith. Add to our faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, 
brotherly kindness and love. And then he describes the result. He says this, for if these things are yours and increasing, you're growing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these things, these qualities, is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. In other words, if you're growing in your faith, if you're building on it, you're adding to it, you will be effective and fruitful. But if you're not growing in your faith, it's like you have spiritual cataracts that slowly cloud your vision and prevent you from seeing clearly. You won't have the confidence that you're cleansed of your former sins. If you struggle with assurance of your salvation, or if you lack spiritual confidence, the Bible teaches us that spiritual growth solves these problems. The more rooted and built up you are in Christ, the more established your faith becomes. Because the solution for a lack of assurance or a lack of spiritual confidence is not to lean away from Christ, is not to look in at yourself. It's to dive deeper into him. It's to know his heart more and more. It's to be more convinced of his truth and his character and his love. This is what Paul is about to launch into in the rest of chapter 2, that spiritual maturity, spiritual stability comes not by doing rituals or engaging in in different practices like worshiping angels or things like that, but, but in Christ and in Christ alone and growing in our relationship with him. Spiritual maturity comes when we grow in our faith, growing in our knowledge and our love of Christ. To have a settled faith, you have to walk in Christ. Finally, the last thing Paul mentions takes a turn. He commands us to walk in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving. So he breaks from the metaphor here of the tree that the previous three words had, and he goes to this idea of abounding in thanksgiving. What does a person who walks worthy of Christ do? They're thankful, and it's not a one-time thing. It's a character trait of their life. The word abound is found in Luke 15, 17 in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is eating pig slop, and he remembers that his father's servants have more than enough food. It's the same word. The servants had abundant food while the prodigal starved. What are we to abound in? Thanksgiving. Do you grasp how incredible this is? The crowning distinctive, the key trait of walking with Jesus is thankfulness. The fruit that appears on the bow of the Christian who is rooted and planted and firmly established in Christ is thanksgiving. Well, this leads us to a simple but convicting truth. People who walk with Jesus are thankful people. If you're not a thankful person, there's a problem. Your relationship with Christ is not as strong as it can be or should be. 
Why are people who walk with Jesus thankful? Well, because they know that they're sinners saved by Jesus and that they're unworthy of anything good. They know that whatever good they have comes from the kindness and the generosity of their Savior. They receive from Jesus the good and the bad because they don't think Jesus owes them anything. In fact, they know the reverse is true. They owe everything to Jesus. They're deeply humble as they recognize more and more what God has done. And that humility then leads to contentment in all circumstances because their treasure, Jesus, is still with them. That means they possess a joy and a grace that has a fragrant aroma in their life. They love God supremely and love others sacrificially and they don't think either is a chore or a burden. They're also aware of other people. They see God working in situations. They notice the contribution of others. They don't overlook the smallest of things. That's a thankful person who walks with Jesus. How are you doing with that test? Do these traits characterize your life? Ungrateful people quickly complain, swiftly pout, and hesitate to recognize the contributions of God and others in their life. They're kind of just generally miserable, truthfully. Thankful people are people who walk with Jesus. Now, there's something incredible about this fruit of thanksgiving. It's both a response to our treasure and a transforming influence in our hearts. It's both a response and a transforming influence. Think about it. Thanksgiving reveals a content heart because if you're not content, you're not gonna give thanks. But the exercise of giving thanks actually begets greater contentment as we focus more and more on what we've received in the Lord. Thanksgiving stems from a heart of joy. Pouty people don't give thanks. But the effect of giving thanks is actually to produce more joy in your heart. Thanksgiving springs out of a deep love for God and others and and fosters and cultivates more love for God and others. It's hard to be angry at other people and, and be selfish with them when you're thankful for them. Thanksgiving is driven by humility And yet it fosters even deeper humility. Because to give thanks, you have to recognize that someone else did something for you. To be humble enough to give thanks means a person will focus on others. And so the more you give thanks, the more in tune you are to other people. And and we could keep keep going on and on and on, but but Thanksgiving is a response and it's it's a transforming influence. And, And there's so much more to say about Thanksgiving and giving thanks. And Paul actually will return to this topic in chapter 3. But before we move on, don't let it be lost on you that healthy, mature, established Christianity is marked by thankfulness. If you desire to really grow in this area, you have to first get a clear picture of how bad it is. And so what I'm about to say next is not for those of you who just want to do something to kind of get the monkey off your back. If you really want to be more thankful and you want to grow, do this. Ask someone close to you who you love and who loves you this question. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being I always complain, 10 being I always give glory to God, 
where do I fall? And be honest with me. And then don't punch them or argue with them when, with their assessment. You might have to assure them several times, I'm not going to be upset with you. When they answer, repent of the sin and ask for specific examples if you don't know. And by the grace of God, begin practicing the spiritual habit of thankfulness. You can start that in prayer. Start your prayers with giving thanks to God. If you take time to think, there are dozens of things every day that you can be thankful for. Dozens. Not just things that went on during the day, but things that God has done for you that you haven't even thought about. Begin practicing the spiritual habit of thankfulness. Let's wrap up. What we have here in these two verses is a beautiful portrait of how a believer grows up into a mature, healthy, settled Christian. The believer who practices these things will live up to the family name. If you have kids, you probably have used that expression before. Live up to the family name or something like it. You want your children to conduct themselves in such a way that their choices and their actions honor and uplift the family's reputation and not diminish it. You don't want other people thinking that you encourage your kid to play chicken in the road or to, to, to do all sorts of crazy things. You want them to behave in such a way that it honors you as the parent. And that's exactly what Paul is calling us to do here. To live in such a way that other people will look and say, you're different. And you can explain, I serve a great Jesus. My Savior is incredible. And he's done this in me. Walking worthy of Jesus is living up to his name. And we don't do that in our own ability, but by leaning and diving and digging into our relationship with Christ. Because through our union with him, we have all the grace and the strength we need to walk worthy of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me and ask the Lord's help to do this? Father in heaven, we are commanded to do things that seem impossible to us. And yet, we understand from Scripture that you always supply the grace and the strength to live out your commands. There's no command in, in, in the cover, from cover to cover in Scripture, that t tells us to do something that we are unable to do. Help us to abide in the vine, to dwell richly in the Scripture so that the Word would then dwell richly in us. And help us to be thankful people, to not be Pollyannas and whistle in the dark, but to, to truly engage in the spiritual habit of finding what we can praise you and thank you for. And that over time, the habit of giving thanks would transform our hearts and lend us stability as we walk through the brokenness of life. We thank you for the encouragement of a, of a, of a body, of a church to, to minister to one another with this. And I pray that we as, as Red Rocks Baptist Church would, would love one another and support one another in our pursuit of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. 
May God bless you as you follow him.